Welcome to the United Basketball and Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Smith. My hope is throughout this podcast series, you'll gain knowledge to help you be a better leader and coach for your team. Now, let's grow the game together. I'm very happy to have my good friend, Dr. Tim Rice, on the podcast. Tim has been a Division III head coach. He's worked with Division I basketball teams. He was just named an assistant coach for the under-20 Irish men's national team. He has a doctoral degree. He's been an athletic director. He's a college professor. He's done it all. And he's going to share with us how international coaching helped change him and his perspective on the game and sports psychology tips and tactics to help your players overcome anxiety. I want to welcome my good friend, Dr. Tim Rice, on the podcast. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing really well. Appreciate you having me. Well, Tim, um, you had to have been watching ESPN last night and watching the Michael Jordan documentary, right? Oh, totally. What were your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, uh, I think one of the biggest things with it, and, you know, honestly, no disrespect to LeBron James or uh, Kobe Bryant or any of the greats that are playing today, but um, I think after even the first two episodes, uh, I think people that – if people think still believe that someone is better than Michael Jordan after watching those two episodes, uh, I don't, I don't really know how they can think that way. Um, you know, he, he is even in the first two episodes, it shows, uh, he was a world-class competitor. It wasn't just a, about being a great player. Uh, he had a drive to be successful and he was just so mentally tough and psychologically just a battler. So I thought it was great. I wish they weren't every week. I wish that we could just get them all at one time and I would just watch them all in, in one sitting. Yeah, if they released them at noon, I'd watch for 10 hours straight and watch it again the next day, which I'm going to do watch tonight as well. One thing I appreciated when I was watching it was when they interviewed his mom. and going back to talking about when he was in high school and cut from the team and she's like, Hey, just work harder. <laughs> you're going to yeah. play, you're going to play JV basketball this year. Just work harder. There was no thinking about, am I going to move him? Am I going to call the coach? Or we, it's like, Hey, just work harder. And that was it. That's exactly right. And, you know, um, I, I think that that's, I think that that's how times have changed, you know, uh, Michael Jordan had two parents that were hardworking uh, uh, people. And, you know, he learned, I think he learned his work ethic, not only from his parents, but also from his uh, siblings. And, you know, obviously it's helped him uh, climb the ladder uh, in this business and sport, uh, but obviously to become the greatest basketball player to ever live. I loved it when she read the letter that he wrote from college about, hey, mom, put some money in the account. Hey, mom, send me some stamps. When I was in college, it wasn't send me some stamps. It was, hey, mom, I need more minutes on my phone card. Hey, mom, my account's got $20 in it. So just to see how he was just a regular college kid, and I know a lot of these guys were, but unfortunately today we tune into these players' lives when they're 14, 15, 16. So there's never any mystery about these guys and yeah. it's not their fault. It's just the culture we live in. So just to see a side that you that you don't hear about, obviously, we're talking, you know, late 70s, early 80s when it was a different world. But I thought that was a really sweet moment in the show. Oh, I did, too. And, you know, one of the things that I think when I think about young people today, um, they I was actually right before everything started last night, I went out to get a bite to eat and uh, some takeaway at a local uh, fast food place. And, um, and I was thinking about how uh, there was a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of promotion for this series. And um, I thought about, I heard all over ESPN on the radio, they had the starting lineups from Chicago, uh, from the uh, United center, you know, and I remember when the bulls won their first championship and they had, you know, from Chicago stadium there and how they would have their, uh, announce uh, the, announcing the starting lineups and it just brought back such incredible memories and I just think man we were all blessed to have that opportunity to witness that uh, even from a distance it was pretty neat 
Yeah, what I remember about the mid-90s and the Bulls run is we never missed church, never missed church on a Sunday night. So the games would always be going when church was about to start or when you're getting home. Like, And you would be, you'd fly home to catch most of the game or you'd leave as late as possible. That's what I remember, just these moments where you're getting your friends to come over. And then there would be that 8 o'clock game or that 9 o'clock game, and it was a lot of fun. So enough about that. We can enjoy this show or the the show for the next five Sundays or next four Sundays and get as much Michael Jordan as possible. So moving along with the podcast, Tim, of all the people I'm going to have on the show, your your resume is as impressive as any. Division three head coach, worked with division one teams, international coaching, been an athletic director. You have your doctorate. Like your resume is very impressive. And with that, what I want to focus on at the beginning of the podcast is your work in Ireland. So I want to talk about how that came about and how coaching in Ireland has changed your coaching philosophy and style. Sure. Well, I, I think for starters with Ireland, it, it all began in 1991. I, I was working at a summer camp up in New York state called Racket Lake boys camp. And our basketball coach was a guy named Kieran Murphy and Kieran had been a longtime National League player in Ireland with Galway Democrats and got a chance to meet him on a, actually on a basketball court playing pickup. And um, he gave me my very first opportunity to coach a team in the summer of 1991 as a 21-year-old kid uh, coaching the under-10 team that was playing in the Adirondack Cup tournament in that summer uh, of uh, 91. And we just developed a great friendship and stayed in touch. Uh, I mean, if you think fast forward it, you know, to 2015, I mean, that's 24 years later. Um, and, you know, stayed in touch with him. And um, we, uh, we ended up, um, you know, he reached out to me uh, about some other opportunity that he needed help with. Uh, he had a track kid who needed uh, some help, uh, some coaching uh, uh, plans and stuff for hurdling. And I had a former assistant of mine who uh, helped him from distance. And then Kieran said, Hey, Tim, uh, when are you and Candy going to come over to Ireland? And I said, well, I mean, I don't know. And he's like, well, come on over and we'll, we'll put you up in the school here at St. Mary's college. And, um, and uh, you can stay however long you want. So we made our 20th wedding anniversary in the fall of 2015 to Galway, Ireland, and we also made a trip to uh, France, this French Riviera, and to Norway on a cruise ship, and to Great Britain, and and uh, went up to Northern Ireland, Ireland as well, and uh, just fell in love with the place. Um, got a chance to get uh, kind of uh, plugged into the basketball community during that two-month time there in Ireland, and um, and next thing you know, I put in my resume for a potential uh, coaching position within Basketball Ireland. Uh, right before we headed back home just to see what would happen. And they interviewed me and they said, Hey, look, uh, if you come back, which originally the intention wasn't that I was going to come back, but we ended up falling in love with the place. And we put in a, 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 a proposal with St. Mary's college, the school that Kieran was the principal at for us to come back and work for the rest of the school year, my wife, Candy and I. And so um, we, uh, we ended up, I, I interviewed Basketball Ireland. They were impressed, it seemed. And um, they said, when, if you come back to, over to Ireland, we'd like you to work as a technical assistant or consultant with us uh, while you're in Ireland. And so when we got back, I coached basketball five days a week at St. Mary's and, um, and then also did some work basketball Ireland uh, going around the country and watching their national team coaches coach and kind of ended up giving uh, basketball Ireland a 40 plus page report on what I saw. And it was almost like doing a master's thesis in many ways. Um, but uh, it made a huge difference in, in how I look at coaching now. And uh, obviously I love Ireland so much and just having the opportunity to to be involved uh, with the country's program has been a, a huge blessing. No, and because of you, I've been to Ireland twice, done some basketball while I've been over there, some kids camps, and we love the people. We love our friends there and hope to go back again. What is one key thing you learned while coaching there 
being able to get a lot with a little bit of time, get a lot in with a little bit of time. You know, uh, in Ireland, when, when it came down to practicing, we would normally get, um, I would work with my kids five days a week, but there would be different groups throughout those five days. So you get two days a week with each age group. So if I was working with the under um, 14 age group, uh, what they consider the first years, which would be like seventh grade over there, um, then, you know, I get them twice a week. Or if I had the under 15s, I'd get them twice a week or, or whatever it might be. And so you get an hour and 15 minutes at a time to work with these kids. And you had to be efficient. You had to get a lot in with a little bit of time. And, um, you know, I was used to being here in the United States and getting two hours or more of time five days a week, if not six, and, you know, throwing tons of stuff at kids. And instead over there, I had to do what I call supersetting, which is basically getting a lot of skills into one type drill or one type of activity uh, to be able to, you know, teach them what they needed to know. And um, I think that's what made me, it's made me a better coach, has made me really appreciate um, that sport is universal, but sport is something that I think we're spoiled here in the United States. I, I would recommend that any person that's a coach here in the United States go to Europe, go to Ireland, go to the Republic of Moldova or other parts of Europe and work with uh, some of the players because you would really gain a better appreciation for what you have. So if you were to take over, a, let's say, a, a program here, what would you do differently based on what you learned? Obviously, you're a more efficient coach now, but is there anything specific of a style of play, philosophy? Yeah. Uh, well, I think that what I would do if I were to take a team over at whatever level it might be, uh, it would be opening the game up more, um, more spacing, uh, a lot more um, stuff that is going to get kids using reps that are more um, effective reps. You know, I think a lot of times coaches will use um, specific, uh, they, they have these drills or things that they learn from their coaches and, and they use it because, well, my coach used it, right? So it can work for me. Well, every person's different, right? We all learn differently and we all have to come up with our own identity, develop our own identity. For me, um, I, would, I would be a lot more efficient in uh, transitioning from one of uh, uh, drill to the next. I think I was pretty good before, but um, being able to uh, get more out of the time that I had. I mean, you know, if I look back to the two hour practices I had when I was a head college coach or even as a high school coach, um, I feel like I was way more efficient at St. Mary's and we got a lot more out of that hour and 15 minutes because number one, we drilled and got the fundamentals down, but ultimately those kids wanted to play. And uh, right. so many times coaches here in the U.S. fail to remember that kids are wanting to play the game to play the game. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, that's not to um, discount teaching or discount drilling, but I think that that would be more, I'd have more emphasis put in my practices on getting up and down the floor, breaking down stuff, um, in a way that, uh, you know, we are actually active in it as opposed to me just jacking my jaws all the time. I'm guessing if I'd have watched one of your practices there, that it was probably, I don't mean sloppy in a bad way. It was probably pretty messy because that's how kids learn. Whereas many times we have these great drills that go well, they look perfect and we feel good about ourselves, but it doesn't transition to the game. But we walk away feeling like, man, that was a great practice. We hit 20, we hit 20 layups in a row on that drill. That was a great practice. <laughs> well, I would say this, that, you know, um, what I saw in Ireland at St. Mary's, we had, I mean, you know, you saw St. Mary's, you went on the campus there, gorgeous old campus, uh, historic campus, over hundred years old. And, um, you know, we were very lucky because we had two uh, sports halls or two gymnasiums for our, mm -hmm. uh, we could play and um, in practice. And what I saw every single time that kids came in and wanted to practice or play was a love for the game. Like yes. we have kids now here in the United States that don't truly love basketball. I'm not saying you know, all of them, but a lot of them may feel pressure to play. We had almost, we had 75 boys in a school of less than 300 that were playing basketball. 
on a wow. daily basis, three and sometimes up to a hundred. So a third, if not more than a third of the campus was playing basketball. And we're talking the outdoor courts when it was raining. And it, as you know, it rains a lot in Ireland. They're playing yes. out in the rain. And so um, I, I think that that's what I gained from it is an appreciation and love for the game uh, that, you know, I think I had lost before that. No, I could definitely see that. I mean, you know, again, every country is different. Our kids are blessed and it's all they know. But it, I was thinking a minute ago, we were talking about kind of old drills and old things to kind of break away from. That can be tough for a young coach to establish their own identity. And one thing I remember at my coach preached and preached and preached and preached was the proper arc on your shot is 60, is 60 degrees. You know who said that? Don Meyer. And everyone just accepted it. Everyone just accepted it. And I'm not saying there's not a kid out there who has a great shot at 60 degree, but if you do some studying on it and watch kids shoot, it's just interesting that that isn't probably the right way. But the whole point is we hear these things that a famous coach said, or maybe our high school coach that we, that we really love say, and then we preach it and we go by it without finding out, is it true? Is it authentic? And is that, is it fit my style to play if, for example, if it's a drill? Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to jump in on that. I think that, um, you know, I'll never forget the late 90s when Rick Pitino was at uh, mid to late 90s. He was at Kentucky and everything was up and down and pressing, you know, run and jump, you know, everything. Uh, and everyone, I remember wanting to be a coach that coached like that. But really, it was something that, um, you know, wasn't necessarily my style. I, I now looking back on it. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate after that time frame to be uh, mentored by some really uh, good Division three coaches like Harry Sheehy at Williams. He's uh, now the athletic director at Dartmouth in the Ivy League and, uh, and Steve Lammy at Grove City College in Pennsylvania, um, who runs flex offense as a Division three coach and is, you know, Players don't know how to defend a combination screen anymore. So, um, you know, I think that being able to uh, be true to who you are is important in what we do. I don't think enough of us uh, focus on who we can become. We try to be what someone else is. And, you know, Coach Meyer, man, what an incredible guy he was. And uh, a guy who was way ahead of his time as a coach. Yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot what I want to do, but what my kids are able to do, if they're not, a, they've got to align. Like there's a lot of things I would love to do as a basketball coach, but I probably need a couple of college level kids to do it. So I'd love to run and gun, get up and down. But the last couple of years, we've slowed it down. We'll have possessions. The shot clock would kill our style of play the last two years because we've had possessions that go 50 seconds to 70 seconds. And, and I think it's great basketball. A lot of, a lot of people don't, but that's okay. Um, I want to talk about this. You received a very high honor. You've been named an assistant coach on the under 20 Irish men's national team. How excited are you about that? And what does that mean to you to be recognized for your professionalism? Well, I, I think, well, obviously, I think any person that can represent a country um, in any situation is pretty, I mean, that's an incredible uh, uh, blessing, um, you know, to, I was going to be, and of course, we're going to be competing at, at the uh, European Under-20 Men's Championships in uh, Georgia, in the Republic of Georgia, in Eastern Europe this summer. Of course, COVID-19 happened, and so that's not happening uh, now. But um, to be able to assist um, a good friend and Mike Lynn, and he's one of the good guys in the game, and to be able to be on the sideline with him, wow, what a huge blessing. But to be a young, uh, uh, a kid from the South, uh, you know, being from South Alabama, a poor kid growing up, to go from being a kid growing up in a trailer house to then, you know, years later being an assistant coach on the Irish national team, that's a huge honor. It really is. No, absolutely. And, again, I've known you for a long time, and you were really hard at your craft, highly educated. And, and, and I think it also talks about your relational skills. Well, I would say one thing that I've been very fortunate to have happen is I've been very involved as a member of the Elite Performance Committee uh, within uh, the program. And, uh, and the EPC is uh, the organization that governs the entire program. So we are going after the coaches and all the administration 
of the, of the overall program. We have two senior teams, men's and women's. We have an under 20 team for men and women. We have a under 18, under 16 teams for men and women. And we also have academies going on too from under uh, 15, under 14, as well as a green shoots program that's going, that's a developmental program that our, uh, the Basketball Ireland development staff uh, is doing over there. Um, you know, to have been involved in that process of helping with that, even in a small way, has been just a huge uh, opportunity for me. And so, you know, to see that, you know, junior NBA is going on over there, and I was the first person to reach out to the to NBA Europe to get that started. And then uh, the team at Basketball Ireland moved it forward, and they're going into week, year three of that uh, right now. So, I think that, you know, when I see those things, I am very proud of the fact that, you know, I, I've had a chance to help and uh, that I get a chance to go back uh, typically twice a year uh, to, to be involved and, and to see my good friends and, um, you know, to represent a country I love is truly an honor. Absolutely. Definitely a huge honor. Uh, one more uh, topic before we move on to the sports psychology portion of your, of your resume. What FIBA rules do you think? would you like to see adopted in the United in the high school high schools and yeah. college in the US yeah well <clears throat> if we were to look at high schools uh, having a shot clock i mean that that's something that i think we might never score come on tim yes. my team <laughs> might never score <laughs> well you know and the interesting thing about it you know even when i was working with kids that were you know uh 7th graders they were playing with a shot clock 24 second shot clock so um, you know, it was just the way it was over there. So um, that was an adjustment um, for me. I, I think that, you know, the, that's a big thing. I think the other thing is um, just the way that the game is played is a much more uh, wide open game. Um, you know, in FIBA rules, they have quarters, um, you know, so it, it's going to be a little different than say some high schools have halves of course the college men's game has halves um the women's game has gone to the you know the quarters now um I, I think that having a shot clock i think in college i think i'd bring the shot clock down to 24 seconds um from 30 uh and i, I think that that's um i think it's something that needs to happen um and you know i, I ultimately um you know the way that european countries play if you're ever to watch European championships every summer, you would see a more technical game plan, a more, they, they are way more skilled in terms of their fundamentals. Uh, they have really good things, sets. Like uh, I would encourage anyone, if you're ever interested in really seeing countries that can really run offense, Portugal runs offense. Oh my gosh. Um, they do some really good things. Uh, uh, they, they run a lot of great sets and a lot of different things. Uh, Finland is really good. Um, and Israel is great to watch too. They're extra, they're not very big, but they are very feisty and they battle and they run a lot of different things and they shoot threes a lot. And I mean, it's, I think that I like the wide open game that you yeah. see in Europe compared to here. You talked about the skill level being really high. Is there youth, skill development different than ours? I don't necessarily mean in Ireland, but in the yeah. European countries that, that you're educated on? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, well, it depends. It, when you look at the national team structures there in specific countries, you know, they're going to have developmental programs, just like we have in the United States and just like Canada has. Uh, it's going to be, um, but in Europe, they're going to have a lot of academies that are sport academies there where kids actually go and go to school and they're going to school for sports. Um, so that's a little different. And of course, we're starting to see more of that with like Spire Institute and IMG and schools like that here in the United States. But it's a lot more uh, focused over there in that way. I mean, if we're looking at it from the Irish perspective in terms of basketball, I mean, right now, I believe the game is is seeing a renaissance. Um, you know, uh, many people in Ireland saw uh, – the sport grow to amazing uh, heights and, and, and actual uh, interest in the 80s, early 80s and mid 80s. Um, and then it died off a little bit 
well, there's a renaissance right now going on, and I think a lot of it has to do with the differing, uh, the different uh, things that are happening, the different programs, whether it's the junior MBA program that started, whether it's the academies program that started there, uh, the schools having their championships. Club basketball is really big in Europe. Um, you know, you're going to see a lot more club basketball play than schools basketball play. Right. Um, so I think that has a lot uh, as a major difference than the United States. Um, and, you know, you could liken it to AAU being the number one thing here. If it were number one here, that'd be like it is in many uh, countries in Europe where clubs more important. Okay. And I do feel like for a lot of players, AAU is their number one. Um, yeah. But no, that that's great. Thanks for your feedback on how basketball is in, in Europe. And again, congrats on being named to the, to the staff of the men's national team there. Yeah, I want well, to. Dive- I, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, you know, every uh, every once in a while, every squirrel's gonna get a nut, right? Absolutely. So, no, you know, I, you're I right. <laughs> you're right. It's like Scottie Pippen growing six inches in one summer. Yeah, going yeah. from an equipment manager right. to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, people. Again, he had a great work ethic. Not diminishing his work ethic, but if he doesn't grow five to six inches, if he stays six one, he's not a pro. Would you right. agree? I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that's what people leave out. And everybody's tweeting last night, work ethic, work ethic. Even the manager can do it. Sure. That's awesome. Being six, seven, you know, they say that uh, the NBA is the genetic lottery, you know, yeah. Uh, hardworking five, eight guy rarely makes it. Muggsy Bogues, Spud <laughs> Webb, or, or I might have a shot. Control what you can, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. We'll be right back to the interview in just a few moments. But first, I want to thank you for listening to the United Basketball and Leadership Podcast. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to have you write us a review. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast or about United Basketball Clinics, you could follow us on Twitter at United underscore clinics. Or you could visit our website at unitedbasketballclinics.com. All right, let's talk about how you got involved in sports psychology. And what led you to that? What, what, what drew you to that? Because now you're a department chair. You uh, consult many different groups for this. How did you get your start? And what exactly is sports psychology? Yeah, well, I, I mean, sport, well, I am, I am the, uh, the program chair of the Doctor of Psychology program at Ashford University in um, San Diego, California. It's a completely online school. But um, I've taught online for uh, 12 years for numerous schools, and I've taught sports psychology for um, Ashford uh, since 2010. And, you know, I, I got involved with sports psychology really in my doctoral program. Um, I did a dissertation looking at competitive uh, anxiety and sports self-confidence in NCAA Division Three men's basketball teams. I looked at ranked teams or the highly ranked teams out there that are successful most years, uh, every year, and then uh, the, the traditional powers. And then I looked at the teams that were just, you know, the also-rans, the folks that aren't that great year in, year out. And I looked at, I compared the differences between their competitive anxiety and their confidence in their sport. And I found that the competitive anxiety aspect, the best teams in the country had lower levels of competitive anxiety. and uh, I thought that they would have higher levels of sport confidence, but actually that was not found to be statistically significant. Of course, I'm talking in uh, academician terms now. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, that that really got me started. And I, you know, I was a Division three coach at the time, and I, I really wanted to uh, apply it to what I was doing. I had been an assistant coach at Williams College in Massachusetts, and you know, our guys they put that jersey on that Williams jersey and you know, they just expected to beat everybody. You know, they, they were, uh, they had talent. There's no question about it, but they were smarter than uh, any kids that I ever worked with. And then when I left there and we won 20 games that year when I was an assistant, won the New England, uh, the, uh, our conference championship, the NESCAC title. And um, I went to Grove City in Pennsylvania and I saw a team that had more athleticism and maybe a little more talent in specific areas, but just didn't have the same confidence or had issues with anxiety. And, um, and I thought, boom, they're, they're, the, the bulb just turned on. And I thought that that was really neat. And so I just really got into it and involved in sports psych after that. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate to have a large number of my former students go on and, of course, they earn their doctoral degree with me, with me chairing them. And, of course, they do it. I just help lead them. 
but you know we've got people that are in uh, every uh, May, uh, they're in universities, colleges. Uh, one actually is over the Mississippi State uh, entire athletic program, Mississippi State, with sports psychology now, um, Dr. Angel Brutus. And so you know to have that uh, opportunity to make that difference has been a huge uh, blessing in my life. No, that's a great point. As you were th- as you were speaking, I was I was just thinking, how do how did you recognize or how can a coach recognize if their team has a high level of competitive anxiety or anxiety? Well, I think a lot of it, it boils down to, well, I mean, there are obviously uh, there are survey instruments that you can use that are assessments that you can find that out. Um, You know, one of the older ones is the sport um, competitive anxiety test um, from Rainer Martins, the the, uh, founder of human kinetics, the textbook company. Um, and that's what I use for my dissertation. You can find it actually on Google. It's out there. But um, I think one of the things that is being really watching closely, watching your players closely and seeing kind of what their behaviors are like, how they handle situations, uh, their body language, you know, and self-talk is such an amazing, uh, amazingly powerful thing with athletes and uh, really performers in general. Uh, when you really think about what, like, for instance, if I'm working with a student athlete and they're struggling at the free throw line, a lot of times it's because they're thinking in a way that they're thinking, well, I don't want to miss this shot. Instead of just going up to the line, having a mechanism or a, a ritual, if you will, and thinking it's going in, it's going in, as opposed to just worrying that it's not going to go in. I think the teams that uh, get highly anxious are teams that have, and players that get anxious are those folks that have uh, perhaps uh, unhealthy expectations um, of who they are and what they can become on the court or on the course or on the field. Um, for me, you know, uh, I try to work with athletes to kind of help them increase their uh, ability to think positively but also to uh, utilize other aspects such as visualization. And, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, one of the great uh, skills that I teach when I work with my teams is I'll have a free throw shooting drill. We'll have, I'll have three players get together at a basket. You'll have one person laying under the basket, looking up at the basket. You have one rebounder right by the basket and you have your shooter and the shooter takes a free throw and it goes through the rim. Uh, your hope it goes through the, the basket and the player that's on the floor sees how small the ball is going through the rim. And then the person rebounding of course gets it when it, before it hits the person on the floor and you go through and the person that's on the floor gets up, they become the rebounder. The person who was a rebounder goes and shoots and the shooter goes and lays down and you just go through and you have, you take five, uh, your 10 different shots uh, each person and you basically go around, I go around as a coach and I help them, I talk with them all and I say, you see how small the, the ball is compared to the rim. And that helps them really think about, listen, I mean, the ball isn't that big. So many players think that the ball is big. We have to be able to have mechanisms and different ways of getting this information to our athletes. And you don't have to be a sports psychologist to do that. I mean, that's a really simple skill that you can teach um, your uh, athletes. I want to come back to self-talk in a minute, but it had me thinking how much anxiety can be caused by the coach? How big a role can the coach have in alleviating anxiety or possibly building anxiety? What I hear a lot from my kids is they'll be shooting before practice starts and they'll say, Oh dang coach, I was making them all till you walked in. Oh man, coach, what are you doing? I'm missing. I'm like, I know they're being funny, but part of me thinks there was a little bit of like tension that was caused when I walked up because they don't want to see, they don't want the coach see them miss shots. Am I on the right path here? You're darn right you are. And, you know, I think that uh, when I'm involved with Positive Coaching Alliance or PCA, um, it's a great organization that is really focusing on kind of changing the way people look at coaching and uh, trying to impact sport uh, through honoring the game and really uh, helping increase um, encouragement and confidence within athletes and, um, you know, developing a culture that's different in sport. 
and um, using really, I think using uh, the lessons that sport provides to impact their life. And, you know, um, one of the things that I am really big on when it comes down to, to answer your question, I think that um, we do have, uh, they're looking at us at all times. I think that that's something that coaches don't completely uh, grasp is that as a coach, and I, you know what, I tell you what, I made a lot of mistakes, you know, in my coaching career, a lot where I, you know, didn't realize that folks were looking at me and they were watching me. These kids were watching how I reacted and my behavior. And, you know, if I stomp my foot, you know, like just, it, those are kind of things that lead to uh, issues. And I, I think that, you know, one of the biggest things that a coach can do is uh, lift their players up. Um, you know, yes, we have to, uh, sometimes we have to be tough on our players, but we also have to understand that each kid has a battle every single day. You know, they, we don't know. I think our job is we have to do our part to get to know kids. We have to get to know our players and understand where they come from. You know, some of them may come from a poor background like I came from, but they may have like one parent in a home. They may not have enough money to have enough to eat lunch. You know, so we have to understand where they're coming from. And also, to, so, so yes, I think coaches have amazing uh, power and influence over how a player reacts on the court. Because if I react in a negative way on the bench, they're going to model that. They're going to do that on the court and because they see me do it. And I know that it's easy for me to – a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, right, whatever, but it's true. It is so true. It's in research. No, I was listening to Mike Neighbors recently, and he he's a big researcher like you are very intelligent guy. And he was saying a study that he had done on focus found out the most focused player. So imagine the most focused player you have on the team. If you do something to break their focus, like you may yell, not, not so much talk about yelling, stop your foot, hit the chair, call their name. It takes them seven seconds to get refocused. Think about the player on your team that struggled to focus and confidence took them 21 minutes to get back to the same state of mind. And I think about all the players in my career that I have probably coached incorrectly at times and maybe been the reason for some of their uh, lack of mental toughness. Uh, But no, it's very eye opening in this age of analytics and data and studies. I mean, if, if we're not listening to the studies, we might as well hang it up. Well, and I think that that's important. And that's the thing I really love about Positive Coaching Alliance is that it's, it's based on research. Um, you know, Jim Thompson came up with the concept and, and he really had a, a, it's based on sports psychology concepts. And like one example that PCA uses is, uh, you know, uh, coming up with different um, uh, really just self-control uh, routines. Uh, one self-control routine would be, uh, you know, getting a cool, uh, you know, getting a cool head. So basically, if you lose your temper, you lose your focus as a coach or as a player, you can basically, you know, to keep a cool head, use your hand and basically just tap. So like if you're a coach and you're on the sideline and you see one of your players losing their focus or they, you know, say, hey, keep a cool head, keep a cool head and you tap your head and that tells the player, hey, relax, chill out. And the same thing can be true of a player saying that to you. Hey, coach, calm down, cool down. Keep yeah. Cool head. And I think a lot of times as coaches, we think we know everything, um, but we honestly don't. And uh, a lot of times I think when we have buy-in from our players, it all boils down to when we see uh, what we're trying to do as a collective um, goal, something we all want to achieve. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, if you look at uh, Jim Valvano is a great example, you know, the, the cardiac pack from 1983. And, you know, when they won, uh, when they survived in advance in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the pit, it was all based on Jim Valvano really having his team and they were all on the same page. The same thing would be true uh, if you really think about the Villanova 1985 crazy you know, he shot 79% to beat Georgetown. Um, Raleigh Massimino, he was a person who had a culture of collective, let's go do this. I think Jay Wright at Villanova is in the same boat. You know, mm-hmm. I think that they're the, the great coaches 
uh, you bring up Don Meyer, you brought Don Meyer earlier, you know, he was really big on that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that that's a very important piece to um, being able to really uh, gain the ability to, to calm yourself as a coach or as a player. And, and Positive Coaching Alliance, listen, you know, it's right online, positivecoach.org. I mean, any coach can go look at the, the resources. Right. And I think the difference, again, I don't love talking about back in the day or when I was a kid, you know, there's a time for that. But I think a true difference is this. I think as before you're just coaching the, a game, now we're coaching kids and individuals. So, for example, you talked about the kid who has a negative response to something. Whether they miss a shot at practice, slam the ball, whether the kid – hits the pad after a missed layup, whether they hang their head. Instead of just telling them, stop doing that, you say, here's why you shouldn't do that. Now here's another, something else you can do physically to kind of break, I don't know, get out of that mental moment. Like you need a, a something that lets you physically know to move on. And I, and I think we can tell kids and punish kids to death and say, don't do it this way. But if you need to let them know the why, and you also want to show them there's a better way, and here is a better way. And, and again, that builds trust. And they may not get it. They may not get it the first year, the second year, the third year. But they may get it. It may click. Or they may get it after they left your program and understand that, that that's why you were trying to teach them. So I think one thing is a struggle for high school coaches like myself is the lessons we're trying to learn, we may not see that seed be sown it may be when they're 21 22 23 they think back to what their football coach or volleyball coach or and they're like ah it makes sense now i have a job of a family this is why and we need to give kids the time they need to learn and and i don't want kids i want kids to do what i want them to do but i also want them to learn there's a better way well and i think that another pca principle another tool that you can use when you're teaching kids uh, is using if um if uh, you do this, then this will happen. Uh, you know, and if basically an if when uh, concept. So if it's like you're teaching three point shooting, for instance, or you're shooting uh, practices or whatever. Um, if you step into your shot, then you're going to have a better chance of uh, having, you know, uh, more momentum to make the shot. So if then statements make a big difference. And it does make a difference pertaining to attitude and behavior too. If you control your emotions in a game, then we have a chance to be successful. Even if we don't win on the scoreboard, we have a chance to be successful and be on and honor the game and honor ourselves and our families. And I think that that's something that, you know, is, is missing. I think that's missing in coaching a lot of times. I think we, you know, I talked to you before about, how, you know, another thing that's great about Europe basketball is that there people aren't necessarily, and I'm sure this happens from time to time with some, but most people aren't out to basically lop your head off uh, as another coach, you know. They're not out to, be, uh, to beat your brains out necessarily, um, but they want to compete with you. Um, same thing is true in, uh, in Masters basketball over there, because Masters basketball is really big, 40 and over basketball. You know, they might – I took a charge on this six seven guy this past November at the Galway Masters, and he didn't get mad at me. He just put his hand down, and he reached down and picked me up. So I think that that's a difference in, in our game and in sport in general in the United States. I think that's why Positive Coaching Alliance – I keep bringing it up, but I think for coaches out there, there are a lot of great resources that can help. And you don't have to be a sports psychologist to use it. And help us to grow as coaches because a lot of people want to grow as a coach, they just don't know where to start. One thing that's great about today compared to like when I got started um, back in the, uh, you know, late eighties, early nineties is that, you know, you have YouTube and you have, you know, free clinics and blog, uh, you know, podcasts and, and different things that help you be able to, um, you know, get the information you'd like to have. And sometimes it's free. Many times it is. Uh, other times it may cost a little bit. You know, I was getting books, you know, I was getting uh, as much as I could that way and VHS tapes when I could as well. Um, it's changed an awful lot, but I, I really do believe that there are tons of resources out there and you can find many of them at your local Borders or Barnes and Noble bookstore. Yeah. And I think something that's key, because I was an ath athletic director early on. I, I hope I'm again, one again, sometime in my career. I don't know if that'll happen, but 
I think it's key for athletic directors to get on board with this because they can give guidance to their entire coaching staff. It helps if coaching staffs at schools or universities are on the same page. Not that we need to coach the same way at all or have the same necessary philosophy. But if, you know, a, a kid goes from volleyball to basketball to track and every coach essentially is trying to teach them to do things the right way, then you can really impact a kid. Well, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that that's one thing that, well, I also would look at it in terms of vertical alignment, vertical integration. You know, uh, where you're at at Gordon Lee, you know, you're going to have feeder systems and you're going to have younger uh, kids that are playing basketball all the way down to elementary school. And those kids, I don't know about you, but growing up, I wanted to be a Robertsdale Golden Bear. And, you know, I watched those kids intently when I was a kid, uh, the older kids, and I wanted to be just like they did uh, were. And, you know, I think that having something to shoot for makes a huge impact on a young person, number one. But I also think that when they see a person who's positive and works hard, then that's going to help them be what they want to be down the road. You know, uh, um, I, I think that example, we, we serve as great examples if we choose to for those young people. And, you know, uh, that's why when you're a coach at a high school, for instance, and you've got a developmental program, you have to in develop, you got to invest in that development as the head, head of the program and go and see the elementary games and go and see the middle school games and get involved and watch your freshman team play or whatever. Um, because that does make a difference. And um, I, I know uh, if I could go back and do some of that more, I would have. So, Tim, boy, this has been a great chat. Uh, I think I've learned a lot from you. And uh, one last question for you before, before we move on to the end of the podcast is, uh, who are some of the people that impacted your life to help you be the man you are today? And what type of legacy do you want to leave behind for your players, students, your students through Ashford University, uh, what do you want them to say about you? Well, I would say that <clears throat> when I think about the people that have impacted my life, I mean, I've had so many, um, but, you know, in, in coaching, I've had a lot of different people that have invested in me and uh, really poured into me, into my life. But when I think about the three people or three uh influences in my life. First and foremost, Jesus Christ, who is my personal savior, is my number one influence. Uh, you know, while I'm not perfect, I uh, definitely try to uh, do my part to be as Christ-like as possible. That's one. Uh, secondly, would be my wife, Candy. You know, my wife, Candy, was a uh, National Christian College All-American in two sports, uh, arguably one of the best athletes ever go through her college on the female side and, um, you know, just, uh, but the thing that I've always been so impressed with, with her is her ability to, uh, pour herself into others. And a lot of times she doesn't get enough credit for that. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't be here in the role I am now. Uh, I never would have reached this place without Candy, uh, being such an encouraging influence in my life. And she, uh, you know, she has a doctoral degree as well. She has a PhD and uh, organizational development and leadership. And I tell people that she's the smarter of the two doctors, Rice. Um, and, you know, I, I, she just made a, an absolutely huge impact on my life and continues to uh, just because she is so unselfish and so giving. Uh, the third influence, and people would probably go, wow, this seriously, Tim, but the, the third greatest influence uh, would be my dog, Chase. Uh, I had a yellow lab named Chase uh, who passed away in 2011 from cancer. And we, we bought him as a puppy, a six-week-old puppy in Grove City, well, actually in West Middlesex, Pennsylvania, when we were at Grove City College in 2000. And, you know, the reason why I bring him up is that there has never been a more um, unconditionally loving creature that I've ever met more so than Chase. And, you know, he is one of those uh, examples that I, you know, while I certainly fall short many days of being unconditionally loving, um, I do think of how he, every single day, I'd come home from a long day at work when I was living in Denver, and he would be um, there with a ball in his mouth uh, waiting for me, you know, and tail wagging. It didn't matter if I had a bad day because, you know, he was just happy to see me. 
and I th think to myself, why can't people be more like dogs, right? Um, for me, that that those would be my three uh, most influential uh, uh, people, I suppose, or you know, things in my life. And I think the legacy that I would like to be remembered by, Matt, would be that I held the ladder for people. You know, a lot of times. Listen, I mean, when I think about my own career, I, I was very fortunate to be a head college coach for five years and coach at the college level for 15 years, and coached overseas and been a high school coach. And, um, you know, I, I was very, I've been very blessed. But the thing that's been the most uh, important thing in my life as a coach and as a, as a man has been to hold the ladder for those people to climb that ladder to get to higher places where they could become even more successful, whether they thanked me or not. And I think that a lot of times people get hung up on the fact, well, you know, I did this for this person and they didn't thank me. Uh, and, and for me, I have what's known as a hold the ladder board. It's a board where every, every time that I have something that I help someone with, I will put it on a little piece of paper and then I get a, a, a push pin and I push it into the, uh, the board and uh, you know, Candy came up with the idea cause I was a little down on myself about a year ago thinking I wasn't making an impact. And uh, that's where the whole, the ladder concept kind of came from. It came from me realizing finally, because it was right in front of me on the board that I was making a difference. And I think if more people had a mindset of trying to hold the ladder for others to climb, I think that this world will be a better place. And I know that this profession will be better. No, that's a great point. I mean, um, again, I know your wife I spent much time with her over the years, Camp Shattigay back in year 2000. So no, she's a great lady and we're, we're both blessed with great wives that tolerate us and chasing yes. this, chasing this coaching profession. But Tim, you're a dear friend. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Uh, I know people are going to want to hear what you've got to say about international coaching and sports psychology. Thanks for sharing with us. You bet. And I, I would uh, just say, you know, uh, I'm someone who would love to hear from anyone. Uh, if you are interested in uh, talking with me more, uh, my webpage is www.basketballmentoring.com. And uh, you can get my contact information there. Um, and, you know, I, I want to thank you, Matt, for what you're doing and doing this, these podcasts, um, you know, I've known Matt since 2000 and, you know, uh, to see him be successful in getting this clinic off the ground back in 2014. And I was the very first person to, to present at his clinic in Hickson, uh, Tennessee, there in the Chattanooga area. Um, you know, it, it's uh, really cool to be able to have friendships that last this long. And absolutely. And yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. And we need to talk at least every couple of weeks about, uh, the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. Oh, yeah, well, there's a lot to it, I'm sure. And uh, I will say from anybody, Michael Jordan is still the greatest and uh, player to ever live. Can't disagree with you there. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on the United Basketball Podcast. I hope you'll listen again to future episodes.